and welcome to New Books in World Affairs. I'm your host, Anna Levy. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Sally Engel-Mary about her book, The Seduction of Quantification, Measuring Human Rights, Gender Violence, and Sex Trafficking, published by the University of Chicago Press in 2016. Dr. Mary is a professor of anthropology at New York University and faculty co-director at the Center for Human Rights and Global Justice at NYU Law School. In this book, Mary combines ethnography, human rights, and science and technology studies to explore what happens when numbers combined and reconfigured into indices, standards, and indicators become proxies for people and context. The sensitive and highly diverse experiences that constitute gender violence and human rights, among other themes, sets up a series of debates on the opportunities and limitations of globalized approaches to quantified decision-making. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, Sally. Thanks for joining today on New Books in World Affairs. I'd uh, I'd like to begin. You know, we usually we usually tend to start by asking uh, a little bit about your background. Just tell me a little bit about yourself and and what led you to writing this book. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. And this is a good opportunity to talk about both what's in my book and why I wrote this book. It it began actually at uh, there was a founding moment when I was doing research on human rights and gender violence, I spoke to a staff member from UNICEF, and she was interested in measuring child protection. And she had a series of indicators of child protection, one of which was age of marriage. And she said to me, well, the question is, what exactly do we mean by the age of marriage? Is it the age of betrothal? Is it the age of cohabitation? Is it the age of the ceremony? Or is it the age of first sex? And she said, those are actually all different. And it occurred to me that the implications of all of these are actually quite different, having to do with whether the child's in school or whether the child is uh, able to have a birth when she's old enough and so on and so forth. And she said, so we decided to pick, I believe she decided, cohabitation. Now, this struck me as an interesting question because somewhere somebody has to decide what constitutes marriage. And that decision is made by experts in some perhaps informal way, but I wasn't quite sure how. But once that decision is made, it becomes constitutive of what we define as marriage. And then further quantification efforts are all kind of premised on that understanding about what marriage is. And this led me to wonder where, in fact, these statistics come from and who's producing them and under what conditions. So I decided I wanted to do an ethnographic, sociocultural analysis of the creation of indicators. Now, this is a very unusual topic for an anthropologist to investigate, but I thought it was worthwhile interrogating some of these methodological and structural dimensions of indicators because they are so often taken to provide truth that if we just had numbers, we would know things. And it seemed to me that this notion that numbers are truthful uh, and unambiguously truthful and objective has really been growing. Certainly this was developed in the early part of the 19th century with the emergence of nation states, but it's increasing in particular in the late 1990s with the growth of the internet and the availability of data. And these days we increasingly see the demand for governance by numbers and for more data all the time in order to make political and government decisions. So this led me to think, where do these numbers come from and who's producing them and what kinds of cultural biases are embedded in them? And underlying that question is, what 
are the structures of power that shape what gets measured and what doesn't get measured and how it gets counted. This is actually not an idea or topic that's had a lot of attention in the past. There's certainly been plenty of work on how statistics lie, and lots of people have gone into some detail about how you can manipulate statistics and produce untruths. But I was interested in something different. I was interested in the systemic ways that the very production of this kind of knowledge and the use of quantitative knowledge actually shapes both what we see of the world and how it gets governed. And I, I argued that there are two different dimensions of the impacts of these kinds of quantified measures. One is what I call the knowledge effect. That means it creates the world and makes it understandable. So it produces knowledge about the world. So if we look at something like the Human Development Index, it tells us which countries are more developed than which others. The Corruption Perceptions Index of Transparency International tells us which countries are more corrupt. Now, we don't really, and of course, the U.S. News and World Report tells us which universities and colleges are better than which others. Do we believe in the same values? Do we know where those rankings came from? Uh, are they what rank we would have done it if we looked at the underlying data? We don't really know. We tend to take these sort of process rankings as forms of truth. And I wanted to get underneath that and look at how they're generated. So that knowledge effect is important. And then the second effect I was interested in is what I call the governance effect. The way this knowledge gets incorporated into political decision-making becomes a set of standards by which people's behavior is evaluated and becomes fundamental, really, to new kinds of governance processes. I think most of us in academia or working students are familiar with the phenomenon of grades, right, or marks as they're called in the UK, which are a set of standards by which students are assessed. And those then come to stand for the relative accomplishment of the student. And yet we don't really understand what's the basis for those decisions. And if you have ever tried to grade papers, you'll realize that actually some are good here and others are good there and some are different kinds of problems. So what you actually have is a fluid set of different kinds of variables, which you're forced by the marking system to convert into a series of ranks. And thus then we make specific and concrete things that are actually far more complex in reality. So that's kind of a long answer to your question. Great. Um, and, and to actually build up a, a little bit more and, and go into what what I detected in the book is maybe you can talk a little bit about, um, you know, the book is anchored around human rights, gender violence, and human trafficking. Um, it, how did you decide or what was the process of, of situating this in, in the field of science and technology studies? Why is this a useful or meaningful angle to study these, these three phenomena? I started to read the literature about quantification and where it came from, and a lot of it was in the science technology studies because that's a field that's looked at how scientific knowledge is generated in the first place. I found the work of Bruno Latour, his early work on science, particularly useful because he talks about the way things become seen as truthful, in part through the social processes of witnessing, citations, of kind of social support for the idea that this idea is true, which leads other people to kind of accept it and take it for granted without looking at the underlying data. And this goes way back to uh, important STS science technology studies work on things like how truth was constructed in the 1600s, where you 
in the case of the air pump, a famous case where in order to persuade people that you'd actually created a vacuum, you had to have the test done with an audience at first. And so these people would be witnesses. And gradually this shifted to writing about it so that you get a broader pool of witnesses who hear the data from having been written about it. And so you see that the construction of knowledge is actually a social process. It's not just a matter of finding truth, but it's a matter of producing a kind of truth that gets general social acceptance. And I thought that way of thinking about indicators is really helpful because it points to the importance of the social dimensions of how these get generated. And maybe maybe you can also unpack a little before we get more into into the meat of the book, you know, several terms that that come up throughout the book, um, which which you use to kind of frame and describe uh, indicator culture and audit culture. Um, you describe expertise as, as a form of currency in social and political life. Uh, you talk a lot about uh, new public management, results-based management, and all sorts of different um, framings for similar processes. Uh, there's this one word you use, responsabilization. Um, and I thought that these were these were interesting terms to use, uh, both because many of them are, are borrowed from uh, corporate governance, um, but also as processes that organize information and uh, a focus on outcomes in a specific way. So maybe you can talk through some of these terms and how this language um, both organizes the book and organizes the, the themes that you write about in the book. Uh, the the interesting piece of the indicator and the governance linkage, which I was working on, is that it's actually part of this phenomenon, which is sometimes called uh, results-based management, new governance, uh, various dimensions of new public governance, in which the model is no longer command and control, but that there should be knowledge generated about how policies are working. And this knowledge should then feed back into the policymaking process so that there's endless learning and readjustment and recalibration. And so it, it argues that this is a really integral uh, process. Uh, sometimes this is called experimentalism. And in many respects, this is viewed as a much more responsive mode of governance. But what was interesting to me is that it puts the quantification right in the center of the process. So if indeed this kind of results-based governance is based on how things get measured, it means that to some extent you've moved the decision-making away from the ultimate decision to the question about what you're measuring and how you're measuring it and how you're categorizing it. So once you get your measurement system established and the standards of that measurement system and its techniques of counting and quantification, then compliance measures are kind of a simple question about whether you lived up to that standard. Again, to go back to the grades issue, once you decide what your standards for grading are, it means that the student just simply has to do whatever it is that constitutes a good grade. Uh, whether or not that's actually a good reason to define something as a good grade or not is kind of off the table. So this leads to what I call responsabilization, but actually this is not my term. Uh, this has been developed by sociologists and social scientists who are interested in the way in the current neoliberal era people are being told that they're actually responsible for themselves so that the world out there kind of sets the goals and the standards. And if you succeed, it's because you've worked hard and done the right thing. And if you fail, it's your fault. 
So this notion of responsabilization says that the world is yours to be made, right? It sounds very appealing. On the other hand, it kind of ignores all the structural conditions, which mean that people don't start on a level playing field, that they don't have the same benefits, and that their success or failure may not just be the result of their own activities and efforts, but of a whole lot of other factors they can't really control. So this notion that your situation in life is the result of is, is your own responsibility really fits well with this creation of standards because then it says, look, here are the standards, right? And you just decide whether you're going to live up to these standards or not. It's your choice, right? You can study hard and get good grades or not and not get good grades. And so it, it actually offload some of that discretionary behavior onto the responsibility of the governed and conceals the political decision-making that goes into setting up the standards in the first place. And I think that's really the transition that I see this increasing reliance on numbers, quantification, and measurement provides for us. Uh, it kind of empowers the technical class of people who are generating these indicators and may deflect us from the kinds of political discussion and decision-making that uh, we would find would be a better approach to actually assessing values and making decisions. So that kind of summarizes. It makes an effort to get at some of these terms. Um, I'd like to make a distinction because I think this is fundamental to what I'm trying to do and it's not self-evident. And that is between three different kinds of quantification. And they're actually quite different. And the critique I have of them is quite different. So one of them is what I call counts. And that's where you do a simple count of how many people are in one category or another. The census is an example of counts. So you just count the number of people. It's fairly straightforward, but it's obviously hard to compare one system of counts with another system of counts. I watch this in human rights discussions and you know one country has 13 hospitals and another country has five well what does that tell you about which country has better medical services than which other ones it doesn't tell you that much but even counts like this depend on categories because you have to categorize things into these categories so if you look at something like the census it presumes for example that there is a male and a female that this is a recognizable binary category and it's easy to put people into one or the other but we're increasingly becoming aware of the fact that that's much too simple when we turn to something like counting people on the basis of race well it's clearly much more complicated in the u.s the categories have constantly changed and then when we look at what categories of things actually get measured it turns out in the u.s census we don't count religion but other countries don't count race but they do count religion and of course then always we have categorization problems so even counts are not free of these kinds of cultural dimensions about how you categorize and classify things and what you choose to count the second level is ratios where you compare two numbers with each other and very familiar examples are maternal mortality, how many mothers giving birth die, what's the proportion of women giving birth who die, infant mortality, uh, life expectancy. So these are numbers that are ratios, uh, per capita income, you know, income per person. And they're much more amenable to comparison so that you could look at the number of domestic violence cases in two countries, it doesn't tell you too much. If we look at domestic violence per capita, you've got a much better measure, a percentage of women who experience violence and so on. So that's the second level. 
but then there's still interpretive work going on, not only in creating the categories, but also in deciding what number you put at the top and what number you put at the bottom. So if you want to look at domestic violence in comparison to, say, all women, you're going to have a different ratio than if you say domestic violence in relationship to ever married women or ever partnered women or women in current relationships. So the denominator makes a big difference in what your ratio looks like. So again, you can't really escape this kind of categorization and measurement decision. But the third kind of indicator, the one that to my mind has the most interpretive work in it, is a composite. And these composites take different kinds of data about different kinds of phenomenon and mush them all together into a single rank or measurement. Uh, the ones that I mentioned at the beginning, like the Human Development Index, are examples of these. So the Human Development Index looks at per capita income, it looks at health defined by life expectancy, and it looks at education defined originally in terms of literacy, but there turned out to be not enough variation in literacy because most people are literate, and has now been converted into expected years of schooling. So these three different things are put together with each one weighted as equal to one into a single rank in order to assess where a country stands in relationship to other countries. Now, should they all be ranked the same? Are these good measures for these things? This is not at all an unambiguous thing. It's the result of political decisions about what would be a logical way to measure these variables. And the very fact of looking at these three variables instead of just income per capita, which was the measure that it replaced, is a way of expanding the concept of what it means to think about a country being developed. Because now it's not just dependent on income, but also on health and education. And basically, this is Amartya Sen's idea of well-being, and it's a more encompassing category. But in order to carry this category and to make it visible, it was very helpful to develop this single composite indicator that puts together these different variables into a single rank and allows you to compare all the countries in the world according to where they stand in the hierarchy of ranks. This, of course, is the way college and university rankings work, too. There are 10 different variables. They have different kinds of measures. You push them all together, and you produce a single rank. Uh, and there are many others that do this. The World Bank has World Governance Indicators. Uh, I mentioned Transparency International's Corruption Indicators. Uh, so many of these are these composites, and if you look at where they come from, many of them are made up of indicators developed for other kinds of ranking systems. And they may be liberal and they may be conservative. So it may be that you'll have data from the Heritage Foundation and data from another organization, and they all get put together. But what this means is there's a really long chain between where that data got collected how it got organized and, and analyzed, and then how it's been combined to produce this final rank. And the longer the chain, the more interpretive work is at stake, and the farther you are from the kind of underlying um, ideas that have produced this, that, that you're trying to measure. Uh, and basically what happens in the end is you, you end up constructing the thing that you are claiming to count. The thing they're claiming to count may be so hard to actually pin down that these ranks then provide a way of joining them all together and then producing a new concept like well-being. Or another good example of this is efforts to measure the rule of law. 
This is a very complicated concept. There are many different efforts to measure the rule of law. But ultimately, whatever these different systems decide to measure, probably sooner or later one will come, become predominant, and that will be what we think of as the rule of law. So in a sense, measurement not only reflects the world, but it creates the world that it's claiming to measure. And we're familiar with this in the context of IQ, because we don't really know what intelligence is, and some people think it's one thing, and some people think it's multiple things, but we have this IQ test, and therefore we say IQ is what the IQ test measures, whatever that may be. And here we can see really the power of measurement to, to construct the world. When you talk about the, the long chain um, that is involved, all the many different processes and, and data sources and interpretations of of both, I, I, I think that's what you describe in the book as, as a genealogy um, of specific indicators. And uh, if it is, I, I would love for you to describe a little bit more um, why you chose that term and also what, what exactly is a genealogy of indicators? Um, why is the formation, why is the process of formation so important? And in particular, why why is it so important for understanding the three themes that you've pulled together in this book, human rights, gender violence, and sex trafficking? Um, I'm going to begin by telling you what I thought of as a genealogy, which is actually not the process that I just described, which is really about how you produce a composite. The reason I started looking at the concept of genealogy, which is kind of the way Foucault talks about genealogy, because I became aware that any one of these indicator systems is developed over actually a long period of time, often 20 or 30 years. And so you begin to get a problem that somebody wants to measure and their efforts made to measure it. And then these efforts are used, they're revised, and then they generate a template. And sometimes that template is just put right onto the next problem uh, or used again. And sometimes it's revised, but there is a gradual claiming of knowledge through this long process of development. I, I looked at the media coverage of the Human Development Index, for example, and when that was first promoted in around 1990, early newspaper stories said, I don't quite know what this is, it's measuring these different things, it's not clear how valuable it is, but here's this new measure. And for two or three years, that kind of skeptical questioning what it was appeared in the news media. After a while, the news simply said, this country's HDI is X, this country's HDI is Y, and it became a fact. So it became established over time. Now, of course, the HDI built on previous efforts to measure GDP, to make comparable measurements of gross domestic product. So each new step builds on the past. And that's actually really important because it means that once a path is established, we, this is called path dependency, once a trajectory of development is established, it's kind of hard to change it. It's hard to turn in a different direction. Uh, and so those who helped to start it in the first place come to occupy a particularly powerful role in determining how things get measured. And sometimes a measurement template developed in one area gets carried over to another area. So, for example, when the U.S. State Department decided in the early 2000s that it wanted to come up with a mechanism for measuring how well countries were working to control their trafficking problem, this is now really focused on the sending countries who were people who are trafficked from, they turned to a prototype that had been developed to deal with drug trafficking. 
And in that case, the idea was countries that are countries are assessed at how well they're managing their drug trafficking, because this again is an effort to get the source countries to stop sending their drugs, and so they would be evaluated according to how good their criminal justice system was and their policing. They then would get ranked by the U.S. into good, bad, good or bad, or in the middle. Uh, and there were rewards for those who were doing well and punishments for those who weren't. But that model was adopted to deal with sex trafficking, so the, the human trafficking. So again, you have the movement of a template developed in one setting into another setting, which may or may not be appropriate because it brings with it this notion that the traffic victim has no agency, just like the drugs have no agency themselves. So it's interesting to see how... If you look at this as a historical process and look at it as a cumulative effort, it, it shows you how each new problem gets defined in some ways in terms of the old problem. And the people who have the authority to define the new problem are often those who've worked on the old problem. So it makes it harder for newcomers with different ideas to kind of move into this core process of indicator production and knowledge production. So in a way, looking at it genealogically shows that it becomes an entrenched way of seeing things and is harder to challenge. Uh, it's interesting that when the Millennium Development Goals were created, uh, this was the product of the Millennium Declaration of the UN and then converted in by a small group of UNDP and World Bank insiders into eight, indi eight goals and originally 45 indicators. Uh, and, you know, there was sort of an arbitrary choice of what to measure in measuring development. But there were groups that were left out. Many groups were left out. One of them was indigenous peoples. And a group of indigenous people got together and said, look, we want to have indicators for things that we value in this MDG system. And they came up with things like how many people in your community speak your local language, uh, to what extent is there a sense of well-being in the community. Uh, and they had a conference and developed their own indicators and then presented them to the MDG people, and it did not, as far as I know, get included. So here you have an effort to take the form, right, the indicator form, and put a different kind of content in it. But it's hard once that form is established, that way of thinking, and those who control it uh, are maybe resistant to these new efforts, even when they're already framed in this indicator structure. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. So anyway, that, that's sort of what I think of as genealogy. And as you can see, it's really linked to power. Um, and I gave one example from trafficking. I, I decided to study uh, gender violence, sex trafficking, and human rights, because those are the fields that I've been working in for the last oh, 15, 20 years. Um, and I heard initially about an effort to produce indicators for human rights that is being sponsored by the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights and had a series of kind of expert group meetings and produced a set of indicators for 12 human rights and two cross-cutting rights, one of which is violence against women, uh, and produced a set of guidelines in 2012, which hopefully were to streamline the process whereby compliance with human rights uh, treaties can be measured. Uh, the second I, thing I studied was several efforts to come up with data on the frequency of violence against women. Uh, and this, of course, is an endless demand that we need more 
numbers about this. Uh, when I began studying local movements about violence against women that began to start in the 1980s, the first thing many of them did was to do a survey. How big is this problem? How frequent? And at this point, this is now clearly defined as a global problem. And in the mid 2000s, around 2006-7, uh, the Secretary General came out with an important report on violence against women and said we need more data. Uh, this was then sent to the UN Statistical Commission as a request to come up with indicators on violence against women, and they were told to consult with the Commission on the Status of Women. So one of the things I looked at was both this project by the Statistical Commission and then other parallel projects happening at the same time to also carry out the problem of measuring violence against women. And what I found is that there were actually very different cultural frameworks that were being used to think about how you go about doing this measurement coming from different intellectual traditions, different disciplines, and different organizational structures. So shall I tell you what those are? Yeah, that would be great. Okay. So one of them uh, comes from feminism. And again, here I think you could see the genealogy piece because there were a group of feminists who'd been working on violence against women who organized themselves into a group to do a study of domestic violence under the authority of the World Health Organization. And they produced something called the WHO Multinational, I believe it's called, that's the name of it, Report on Violence Against Women in 2005. And this was a group that paid a great deal of attention to what's called maximizing disclosure. That means they realized that women may not want to talk about domestic violence, and so they asked the questions in lots of different ways. They were very careful not to say, we're here to do a study of domestic violence. Can I talk to a woman in your household? Which might tend to shut up a woman, so they make her nervous about speaking. So they were very careful about how they presented it, to talk to the woman in private, to change the subject if somebody else walked in the room, to provide social supports if a woman was upset by this conversation. And they also defined what they were trying to study very broadly. And they asked about things like insult, insult humiliation, sexual violence, um, the kinds of degradation that are often really fundamental to a victim's experience of violence. So that was one kind of model. And that group, uh, then some of the leaders in that group went on to try to develop their own way of measuring violence against women, a, a survey module, which they hoped would be used by the UN Statistical Commission. So that's one kind of what I call feminist approach. At the same time, the Special Rapporteur on Violence Against Women appointed by the Human Rights Council. I know this is a lot of human rights structure organization, but this is a person whose appointment is, whose, whose job it is to spend two or three years until the next person is appointed, kind of looking into both country reports and writing general documents about how to improve the human rights system for, in this case, women experiencing violence. And so this rapporteur, Yakun Ertuk, did, uh, developed a theory of what kinds of survey instruments, questions one might want to ask about violence against women, and she decided the most important thing was to measure what she called social tolerance. Are people concerned about this problem, or is this the sort of thing that nobody really worries about? So this is a very different thing to measure, but it's quite compatible with what the feminists were doing. Meanwhile, the UN Statistical Commission is in a very different place because it's trying to develop guidelines 
that countries will use to carry out their own measurements. And so it has to have indicators that there will be national buy-in from national statistical offices. So they will do these surveys and they will actually finish them. And so this effort tried to make things countable and statistically sensible, but did not have with it nearly this attention to either the problem of disclosure nor to this kind of wider ramification of behaviors that might also contribute to the experience of violence. So they came up with nine indicators, which pretty specifically asked about whether or not a person had been victim of physical or sexual violence, how severe that violence was, whether it was moderate or severe, what was the person's relationship to the perpetrator. I say person, but this was only women this was asked of. And how frequent was the experience? So it, it ended up being a pretty limited picture of what it is was going to be asked. Some of these questions asked about intimate relationships and some only about all relationships. And finally, at the end, there were a question about emotional violence and intimate relationships and economic violence and intimate relationships. And one final question about female genital cutting, which was called female genital mutilation. And interestingly, the statistician who told me about this said that this was actually the easiest thing to measure because you either were or you weren't. It was sort of a knowable thing, whereas clearly, did you experience domestic violence or not is much more complicated. Um, and they resolved that to some extent by asking whether you were hit, bit, kicked, etc. So kind of behavioral things. So this was a set of indicators which became... Uh, part of the guidelines of a report from 2013. It was discussed in the UN Statistical Commission, which is a body of countries basically approved. So it got kind of national level buy-in. But on the other hand, it ignored some of the things that the feminists wanted to look at or that the UN human rights person wanted to look at and came up with a much more quantifiable but narrow definition of the problem that ignored some of the important issues like fear, experience of violence, um, whether it changed a woman's life, whether she had humiliation or other kinds of harassment, all those things were seen to be too difficult to count and they dropped out. Uh, nor was there any particular concern about creating safe spaces for the interviews and so on. This was left up to national statistical offices. And the fourth approach, so you can see they're all kind of different from different kind of theoretical frameworks. And the fourth one came from the criminal justice establishment, where the idea was to see whether or not this was a common crime, how common this crime was, and whether or not the police response is adequate. And there are global crime trend surveys and criminal victimization surveys that might ask things like this. And of course, the limitation of that approach is you, you may have to use the categories of behavior that are crimes in those countries. So you can have rape, assault, and so on. But that again, kind of limits the number of behaviors that you look at. And if these things aren't crimes in those countries, that may not get measured. And of course, we all know that such crimes are very underreported. If you do a survey, people may not report them in that in the context of a crime victimization survey. And if you use what are called administrative statistics, the, the numbers that um, police departments and courts collect, uh, you miss lots and lots of things that happen that don't end up getting coming to the attention of the criminal justice authorities. So we have here the four different models, right? A 
feminist one, concerned about disclosure and a broad vision of the problem, a human rights one, worrying about the larger climate, uh, a statistical one that wants things concrete and countable, and a criminal justice one that wants to look at whether or not these are crimes or not, the behaviors that are crimes, and whether the criminal justice system responded. And when you think about this, you realize these are measuring very different kinds of things. I mean, violence against women is a huge category that includes everything from female genital cutting to domestic violence to rape to honor killing to dowry murders, you know, vast array of things. But each of these is limited in some ways. But the statistical commissions is probably the most limited and maybe also the criminal justice approach. So having thought about the impact of these different framings and the genealogy behind each of them, I then asked myself, so which one's likely to happen and which one isn't? And that becomes a question of resources and institutions. And it was clear to me that organizations like the UN Statistical Commission, which can rely on national statistical offices, or the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, which organizes these global crime victimization surveys, are both much more likely to carry out surveys of violence against women than either the more feminist groups who are busy trying to influence the Statistical Commission but don't actually have the resources to measure themselves, or the human rights group. So it actually matters which of these approaches you use and how you define the problem and what kind of kind of cultural and theoretical and disciplinary, and I say this in an academic discipline way, background is behind the choice of how you define the phenomenon and how you measure it. So that was an awfully long answer, but having yeah. said that, I'll add one more little piece. One way to show that this matters is to look at the current SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, which are the next iteration after the um, Millennium Development Goals. And for these, there is there are questions about you know trying to control violence against women, and the measures they use are the measures from the Statistical Commission's indicator list. So these indicators are now being transferred into measuring development and violence against women in the context of development. So they, they have broader consequences beyond just the immediate measurement system that gets done by countries. It becomes the template for future efforts to measure violence against women. One of the strong themes which I think uh, you just uh, pulled out really well is is actually the the role of the contemporary role of, of international institutions and social and political life uh, of people in almost every country and territory in the world. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about the State Department, and so that's certainly a different story with its own politics and, and very kind of controversial, loaded history. But there's also, you know, a lot of time spent talking about different UN agencies and, and their kind of disparate roles in coming together and producing indicators, figuring out what categories are worthwhile. And, and then this process that you, you describe takes 20 or 30 years, um, which in large part kind of seems to volley back and forth between international institutions, uh, states and groups, you know, whether they're grassroots organizations, individual people, journalists, collectives, professionalized um, civil society groups within those countries. Um, so that's kind of the first part of, of a question I have, which also looks uh, back to the beginning of the book where you you talk 
about the history and origins of using statistical data for governance uh, as being in colonialism and colonial practice and expansion and managing populations in different places. Um, and so I'd, I'd actually like for you to talk a little bit about what we can learn about the role of international institutions uh, in, in governing global, you know, global life for a constituency that doesn't actually have any direct um, relationship with these institutions and whether or not there is something there in terms of continuity or, or connection um, to, to those origins, those colonial origins. Mm. Well, it's a question that, I mean, it's a really interesting question I have thought about a good deal, and it kind of connects with the fact that to some extent the whole measurement project is one of elites measuring the non-elites in order to kind of govern and control them. That doesn't mean that quantification does not also have a really radical potential to be used by non-elites to expose discrimination and to assert injustice of various sorts. I, I mean, my, my view is actually that this quantification technology is, is in some ways neutral as a technology and it has power within it. And the real critical question for us to think about is who has the power to use that and who doesn't. And in some ways, I view it as a power that can be available to be harnessed by whoever has the kind of skill, capacity, and resources to harness it. Having said skill, capacity, and resources, it's clear that the problem is that some groups and organizations have that power and skill and others don't. And so there is a way that the measurement world is an unequal world with those with the money to do measurements and the skill and the techniques to analyze the data are the ones that are probably going to establish the templates and decide what has to be measured and how. And to this extent, it may well connect up with these colonial projects of knowledge production. I mean, measuring populations, as I said, really started in the 19th century as countries became aware that their wealth depended on their citizenry and their competencies rather than uh, their territory or just their taxes. And so you begin to see systems of measuring things like, you know, health and disease. And some of this was done as public reform efforts and some of it is just to know your population. Uh, I, I did a book on the American colonization of Hawaii. And it's interesting that even as early as the 1830s and 40s, Hawaii, which at that point was still an independent kingdom, was being censused by the American advisors to the Hawaiian kingdom. So again, this idea of measuring to know and to control is, has a long history in governance. Uh, and it was very fundamental to the colonial world. Um, there are anthropologists like Tim Mitchell who've looked at how in order to control Egypt, it was necessary to look at the land size and who owned what land and who the population is. And certainly the British in India spent a lot of time trying to do censuses of things like caste and, and wealth and, and where people lived because it was fundamental to governing these new colonial spaces to become, make them knowable. But this was also done to the working classes of Europe uh, to make them knowable. One example that I, I give in this uh, book, which I think is really interesting, is that in the process of finding ways to measure in the colonial context, there, again, has been a reconstruction of these societies. So the classic example written about in anthropology, not originally by me, 
is the idea that the British wanted to study caste, wanted to know what the caste population of India looked like. So caste technically has five big categories, but in practice it's made up of thousands and thousands of small categories, which more or less fit into the big categories, but not in any sort of tight or unambiguous way. And they're often varied and locally differentiated. And so the British decided that they had to find some universal system for organizing all these different what are called jatis and castes. And they decided, looking at them all, that the ones that made people subordinate, actually one of the themes that they found in a lot of them was that if you a lower caste person touched a higher caste person, that would be polluting. So they developed this concept of untouchability as the kind of dominant way of defining what we now call Dalits, or the lowest caste part of Indian society. So again, this act of measurement in the colonial context contributed to constructing the way that caste identity is defined, even though the system itself is far more localized and complex than the measurement system. Uh, so, you know, we, we haven't really spent much time enough time looking at what those colonial systems of measurement may have done for how those societies were understood and ultimately incorporated and made themselves into nation states. Um, but it, it, again, this sort of brings us back to the fact that these measurement mechanisms produce knowledge, which then were fundamental to governance. But what kind of knowledge is a matter of who was doing the measurement and what they were counting and what they weren't counting? I mean, we have this wide, well-known example that Early efforts to measure economic development measured paid income, which meant, of course, that all the kinds of unpaid labor that was done either in subsistence farming or, more importantly, by women in the family, and caretaking of children and elder people and food production and so on, wasn't counted. So, again, it was a way of disappearing the role that women played. And now we're beginning to think, oh, maybe we need to think about all this care function as an important economic contribution. It's only taken 40 or 50 years to do that. And so the measurement system can disappear things as well as make other things visible and appear. And so, again, it's really fundamental to these forms of governance. Um. I know we're, we're coming to the end of, of, of our time, and, and one thing I wanted to ask you about is the what what you think of in, in terms of the future of classification based on indicators in the, in the digital age and in the data-driven age. Uh, particularly, you mentioned the sustainable development goals before, and, and one sort of key focus of them is the way that big data, for example, will be brought in at both the national and international level. So where do you see where do you see this conversation and these processes moving in this age? Mm. I mean, it's interesting because I it seems clear to me that the processes that I'm describing are going to go ahead faster and faster. I, I am no expert on big data, but my understanding is that the challenge of using big data is that unlike all the processes I've been talking about, this data has not been produced with any particular goal. So when you, the analyst, want to use this big data, you've got to come up with your own questions and categories and then use this data that wasn't actually intended to do what you want it to do to answer your questions. So in some ways we have even more data that may be even more incoherently connected to what we want to know than what we've already got from perhaps inadequate surveys or, or administrative data. And this will be interesting to see how 
people work with this kind of data. Uh, and again, the processes of cultural construction of what you want to measure and what it means is, is fundamental. And it may be that the proxy problem will be even worse. The proxy problem is when you don't have a measure of what you want to measure, but you have a measure of something else that's sort of like it, so maybe you'll measure it. A uh, classic example is in the MDGs, there was a question about have you reached gender equality, and one of the measurements was what's the ratio of men and women in parliament. Now, that's a, that's a useful piece of information, but it doesn't really tell you whether men and women are equal in that society. It tells you something smaller, but you can use it as a proxy for that other bigger question. And I, I don't know, but it may be that as we use more and more big data, we will be doing more and more of this proxy that we have one kind of data that we're using to make inferences about other kinds of behavior. Um, it will be interesting to see, uh, because we certainly are awash in data these days, but the analysis problem seems to me bigger than ever. Just a quick follow-up to that question is, what what is the role of human voice and collective action and sort of very localized context um, as all of these different forms of data become, I guess, something akin to unplanned composites, maybe to go back to what you were <laughs> describing before. <coughs> right. Um, well, I, uh, on the one hand, see, I, I'm now venturing in this big data field, which is not my expertise, but on the one hand, I'm, I'm really convinced that, that first of all, this quantification can be powerful and can be used in all sorts of ways. And to have data generated by local communities that is shaped by local understandings of the relevant categories is extremely important and can really be powerful. Will big data produce more locally defined data? Uh, I don't know. Will, will people be able to use it to kind of come up with other narratives? I think these are questions for us to look at in the future because to some extent this big data is undefined um, and, and has to be defined and so it might offer, again, I, you know, this is, remains to be seen, it might offer a rich trove of data for people who aren't sitting around the tables at the UN and planning surveys but just using this data to to extract pieces of knowledge that might be uh, counter to prevailing views. I, this seems much more optimistic than I really feel about it, but it's possible that it could be done because I, I've seen cases where you could have a, an NGO do a local survey that makes a problem visible that was ignored before, and that can be a really important constructive political move, and perhaps big data will help us do that as well. It really is a matter of who controls the process of knowledge production and then who gets to use it. And I think that's really an open question about big data going forward. Before we before we we actually do wrap up, one of the you know our standard last question at, at the New Books Network is is what are you working on now? What's next? <laughs> um, I have two projects, one of which is a little development and the other may sound really off the wall. So I'm I'm going to do a little more work on the SDGs in the context of how evidence is produced for global development. And I think they're an interesting phenomenon, but it's also a huge problem. And there's lots of activity happening around there. So that's kind of mm -hmm. continuous with what I'm doing. But I, 
I then want to go back to an old problem because I, I did this book on American colonization of Hawaii, and one of the things that's striking about it is these narratives of early contact in which women are seen to be sexually interested in these British sailors and the Captain Cook days, and they swam out to the ships, and this was interpreted as women desiring the European men and women, Hawaiian women, being lustful. And it seems to me that's a very one-sided view and a very limited interpretation. So I want to look at some of these early encounters, maybe in the first 20 years or so, in very specific islands, probably late 18th, early 20th century, early 19th century, to get a sense of what are the cultural frameworks about gender and sexuality and marriage that inform those kinds of encounters. Now, it's obviously easier to know the European side because they write all kinds of things, uh, but there are probably increasingly uh, scholars who are reading indigenous languages and there are, were things written early on. So I'm going to try to look at these kinds of encounters comparatively, particularly focusing on competing, contrasting, and contradictory ideas about gender, sexuality, and, and marriage. So kind of a different project, but maybe yeah. that's what happens after you've been doing indicators for <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> yeah, you switch from indicators to archives that, that may or may not exist. Yeah, well, that's right. But I, I did all the archives. This, you know, I did this book on Hawaii in the in the 1990s, so it's not entirely new. I'm in in essence a legal anthropologist. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in forms of governance, and I'm interested in gender and and sort of understanding women's subordination. So th those are kind of my core concerns. And the indicator thing was really a way of looking at a different. Um, dimension of these processes of power and subordination. Um, and there is kind of a gender dimension to it as well. So I, I don't know, I've done a lot of different kinds of research in my career and it has always been fun to shift, but this is a pretty traumatic shift, I have to say. Yeah, I, anyway. I, I, I am grateful for the shift. I think that um, we spoke a little before and I think that more more of this discussion and more of this debate and analysis is is really welcomed in the field um, and and adds some rich elements that are just usually broken up by you know what people call communities of practice or different forms of expertise. So very much um, a welcome development in in the field. And uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and and the time that you took to write the book. <laughs> um, so thank you. It was it was really a pleasure speaking with you. And to to listeners, I highly recommend picking up this book and reading it. Yeah, thank you very much for lots of good questions and a great chance to talk about it and for your appreciation of it. And I agree with you that it's really important as we get endlessly surrounded by these numbers that we really understand what they are and what they mean to us. Sua assinatura de sol na cara como uma 